Hi, welcome to Come Follow Me with Bree, episode 112, One Book, One Nation. Hello, I'm so glad you're here. First of all, thank you so much to those who reached out to me in the last week and let me know that you listened and that you enjoyed it. It really does mean a lot to me when people, mostly it's usually people I know that reach out to me and say, hey, I listened this week and I loved it. But the vast majority of you are people that I don't know and people around the world. And and I love looking, My I've, I've said this before, but I love looking at my map on my little analytics that I have through the, the platforms that I use. And it shows me where you are listening. I love seeing how many people in each country are listening to me. And I love thinking about that all of you are real people with real lives and real problems and real testimonies of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a real desire to make a difference and to do what the Lord wants you to do. And I guess what I'm trying to say is thank you for listening. Thank thank you to those who do reach out and let me know that you're listening. It really is encouraging to me. This podcast is such a blessing in my life and I am so thankful that I am able to do it that I'm supported in my life in a way that makes it so that I can do it. And I'm supported by all of you, whether you reach out or not, whether you leave a review or not, I see your numbers there. And the fact that you listen, just that you listen, encourages me so much to keep going. And I hope that something I say today can make a difference in your life, can strengthen your testimony. Okay, so let's move forward with what we're going to talk about. Here we are in Ezekiel. Who is Ezekiel? Ezekiel was a prophet overlapping the same time that Jeremiah, who we learned about the last couple of weeks, overlapping the time that he was a prophet. Jeremiah, if you remember, stayed in Jerusalem after the first conquering of the Babylonians and or by the Babylonians and witnessed its final destruction, Jerusalem's final destruction, and was eventually taken away into Egypt and killed. So Ezekiel, who was younger than Jeremiah, was taken during the first conquering of Jerusalem into Babylon. The first time the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they took all of what they considered, or at least most, of what they considered to be the best people of Jerusalem, the most skilled workers, the most educated, etc. They wanted them to help them in Babylon, but they also wanted to ensure that Jerusalem wasn't properly equipped to rise up and rebel. Ezekiel was part of the tribe of Levi. And if you remember, the Levites were the tribe of Israel that was called to be the priests. So the Levites never had their own particular land. They were spread out throughout all of the tribes because they were acting in the function, in the calling of being priests. And once the temple was built, and actually in the tabernacle too, but also once the temple was built, they were the ones that were called to be the priests and and run the temple. So that is how Ezekiel had envisioned his life going. He envisioned his his service, his life being dedicated to serving at the temple. However, he was then carried away into Babylon, away from the temple. So the Lord had a different plan for him. And I bet that was hard for him when you envision your life going one way, thinking that you're going to do this, this great thing and you're going to serve in the temple and serve the Lord and then having that yanked away from you. I feel like there's a real lesson to be learned there where sometimes we have righteous desires. We have things that we envision happening in our lives and then something happens or something doesn't happen that makes it so that ends up not being what we do. And I think we can learn a lot from Ezekiel in that he was then called by the Lord. The Lord just had had a different plan for him, a different way for him to fulfill his call. And I'm sure that was hard to accept at first. And I'm sure that Ezekiel mourned that. And that 
new call was to be a prophet in exile, exile from Jerusalem, now forced to live in Babylon. So for this week's readings, we were asked to read Ezekiel chapter 1 through 3, 33 and 34, 36 to 37, and chapter 47. So obviously we skip a lot in there. I'm going to kind of give you just a little recap just to help you understand as you go in to tackle Ezekiel what you're reading and kind of what the overarching story is because I think that really helps you be able to focus on what's what's in there and what you can learn from it rather than just trying to comprehend the story. Chapters 1 through 3 is essentially the story of Ezekiel's call to be a prophet. And to be honest, they're a little weird. <laughs> he tries to use a lot of of analogies and symbolism and I have a hard time understanding it, but it is a cool story and it's worth your time to read it and kind of get the gist of of how he was called to be a prophet. And then chapters 3 through 24 are prophecies against Judah. 25 through 32 are prophecies against other nations. And then once you hit 33, these are written right after Ezekiel had found out that the temple in Jerusalem had officially been destroyed, which makes sense because he describes it as being the 12th year of exile. And we know that there were 11 years between the the first and second conquerings. Chapter 34 talks about shepherds who don't feed their flocks and then fail to go after sheep that get lost. And that obviously symbolizes those who are called to serve the Lord and don't spiritually feed those that they have stewardship over and then ultimately don't try to rescue those who wander off. And I think about that a lot in just my callings, like people I minister to, am I failing to feed those sheep because those are the ones I've been assigned to or, or my young women's class or my primary primary class. Those are the people that I have some stewardship over and responsibility toward. And I think that we can learn a lot from that chapter about how the Lord feels about it if we don't take that seriously and if we don't try to reach those who are lost. Chapter 36 talks about Israel being gathered and Israel getting a new heart instead of a stony heart. Chapter 37 tells of a vision of dry bones and those bones rising up to hear the word of the Lord and becoming a mighty army. And then the second half of 37 is what we are going to focus on today. So I'll get that I'll get to that in a minute. Chapter 47 gives some amazing prophecies about temples. It talks about a last day sign where waters will issue from the temple in Jerusalem and flow out to the Dead Sea, making everything in its path come alive. Okay, obviously that was really brief and really fast, but I feel like that should help you kind of get the gist of of what you're reading as you read it and make it not feel quite so overwhelming. But where I want to spend my time today is chapter 37. Chapter 37 contains a prophecy that you have most likely heard about before. It is one of the most well-known fulfilled prophecies, or depending on how you're looking at it, continuing to be fulfilled in the Bible. So first let's read the verses that we're going to talk about, starting in verse 15. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it. Now, just to stop you there really quick, a stick is a scroll which is what they wrote the books of the Bible on. So whenever it says stick, it means a scroll that they would write history and prophecies on. Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions, and join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, 
Wilt thou not shew us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and I will put them with him, even the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. And the sticks whereon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. And they say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Okay, so this is a prophecy about the Book of Mormon and the Bible coming together as a testament of Jesus Christ. It also is talking about the reunification of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Ephraim, and ultimately the lost ten tribes, although it doesn't mention that in here. But it's talking about the reunification of those scrolls, of those sticks, and the reunification eventually of the house of Israel. Which is why I said you can look at this as fulfilled if you're talking about the Book of Mormon and Bible coming together as one, and in process of being fulfilled if you're talking about the people, because we know that that ultimately won't be completed until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Mostly what I want to talk about is the Bible and Book of Mormon becoming one. We quite literally hold them both physically in our hands, just like it talks about in these verses. When we are holding our physical triple combination of the scriptures, that is a fulfillment of prophecy. It is no small thing. When we hold our phones with the Bible and Book of Mormon, and not to mention all the modern day revelation and all the things that we have access to on our phones, that is a fulfillment of prophecy. That is the stick of Judah and the stick of Ephraim together as one. Can you feel how exciting that is? I think sometimes we kind of get lost in getting used to the fact that that is a reality. And I think especially for someone like me who's been in the church all my life, I'm very used to the idea that that's just how things are. We have the Bible. We have the Book of Mormon. And I'm sure if you're a convert, that feeling of amazement is a little bit easier to grasp. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. If you know me, you know I get really excited to watch for fulfillment of prophecy and learning about how prophecy has been fulfilled or is continuing to be fulfilled or things that we're still waiting for. One of those things that has been fulfilled is the Book of Mormon and Bible in one. Do we properly appreciate the incredible thing that that is? I know that I Maybe have moments where I feel like I'm sort of appreciating it properly, but I know that I have many where, where I'm forgetting how incredible that is and forgetting to appreciate and be thankful for it in the way that I should be. Ezekiel lived about 2,600 years ago and prophesied about what we've been talking about. Think about the time period that Ezekiel lived. He was carried away into Babylon during the 11-year gap of the first conquering of Jerusalem and the second conquering of Jerusalem. The time when he is prophesying is the time when the story of the Book of Mormon was beginning. Do you think he knew that when he said the Book of Ephraim, that that story, that book that we would someday hold in our hands and join with the Bible, that that story was just starting as he was speaking that prophecy? Lehi and his family had relatively recently left Jerusalem, building a ship, crossing the ocean, and beginning a new people 
a new civilization in the Americas, and that that civilization and its history and its prophets and the words and the things that happened there, that is the stick of Ephraim he was prophesying about. Remember in 1 Nephi, when Nephi is making the plates, and he says this in chapter 9, verse 5, Wherefore, the Lord hath commanded me to make these plates for a wise purpose in him, which purpose I know not. But the Lord knoweth all things from the beginning. Wherefore, he prepareth a way to accomplish all his works among the children of men. For behold, he hath all power unto the fulfilling of all his words, and thus it is. Amen. Think about that. As Nephi made the plates and wrote on them, wrote his story, he acknowledged that he didn't know why. He didn't know why he was making these plates, but he knew that it was wise and that the Lord knew all things. And around the relative same time, Ezekiel was prophesying about what Nephi was doing, prophesying about the importance of it, the eternal importance of this testament of Jesus Christ. The Book of Mormon is the Lord's sign to us that the latter days have arrived. The Savior himself tells us this in 3 Nephi while he's visiting the Americas after his death and before his resurrection. After he describes to the Nephites the condition of Israel on the earth after his second coming, he tells them and us what sign we can have that these things are about to happen. Now, remember, time is pretty relative when talking about things happening, quote, soon. So soon means relative to the history of the earth. Third Nephi, chapter 21, verse 1, the Savior says, And verily I say unto you, I give unto you a sign, that ye may know the time when these things shall be about to take place, that I shall gather in from their long dispersion my people, O house of Israel, and shall establish again among them my Zion. And behold, this is the thing which I will give unto you for a sign. For verily I say unto you that when these things which I shall declare unto you, so what he's speaking right now, and which I shall declare unto you hereafter of myself, and by the power of the Holy Ghost which shall be given unto you of the Father, shall be made known unto the Gentiles, that they may know concerning this people who are a remnant of the house of Jacob, and concerning this my people who shall be scattered by them. So he's saying, when the Gentiles read my words, when they they are given my words, and a knowledge of the descendants of Lehi, that is the sign. The Book of Mormon is the sign. Continuing, Verily, verily, I say unto you, when these things shall be made known unto them of the Father, and shall come forth of the Father from them unto you. So when the Lamanites, when the descendants of the Lamanites receive the Book of Mormon, for it is wisdom in the Father that they should be established in this land, so the Gentiles should be established in the Americas, and be set up as a free people by the power of the Father, that these things might come forth from them unto a remnant of your seed, that the covenant of the Father may be fulfilled, which he hath covenanted with his people, O house of Israel. Therefore, when these works and the works which shall be wrought among you hereafter shall come forth unto the Gentiles, so when the Book of Mormon is given to the Gentiles, unto your seed which shall dwindle in unbelief because of iniquity. For thus it behooveth the Father, that it should come forth from the Gentiles, that he may show forth his power unto the Gentiles, for this cause that the Gentiles, if they will not harden their hearts, that they may repent and come unto me and be baptized in my name, and know of the true points of my doctrine, that they may be numbered among my people, O house of Israel." 
And when these things come to pass, that thy seed shall begin to know these things, it shall be a sign unto them, that they may know that the work of the Father hath already commenced unto the fulfilling of the covenant which he hath made unto the people who are of the house of Israel. In short, the Savior is saying, the Book of Mormon coming to the Gentiles and to the remnants of the Lamanites is a sign that the latter days have commenced, that the final gathering of Israel is happening. Now, as we read Ezekiel, and he's talking about these two sticks, we as members of the restored church read this, and it's clear to us that Ezekiel is describing the Bible and the Book of Mormon, these two sticks that will be joined together to usher in the latter days, the period of time set aside to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ. But most of Christianity rejects this. Those who speak against the Book of Mormon often cite the scripture in Revelations chapter 22, one of the very last verses of the Bible. It says in verse 18, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, Revelations. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. So many Christians will say that means that nothing else can be said, which actually doesn't really work because some of the books in the Bible were written actually after Revelations was, was written. So just because it's the, the end of the Bible as we see it right now doesn't mean that nothing was written after that. In fact, Elder Holland addressed this once. He said, the answer to this query, meaning what we just talked about, is really very simple. A careful reading of the words makes it clear that the warning against adding to or taking away does not refer to the whole Bible or even to the New Testament. But to use John's words, only to the words of the books of this prophecy, that is, the prophecy contained in the book of Revelations. This is substantiated by the fact that some of the books of the New Testament had not yet been written when John wrote the book of Revelation, and even those that had been written and were in existence at that time had not yet been gathered into one compilation. The collection of writings consisting of the 66 books as we know the Bible were brought together and compiled into one volume long after John wrote the prophetic book that has been placed at the end of the collection. It is clear, therefore, that the terrible judgments pronounced upon those who add to the book could not possibly apply to the whole of the Bible or even the New Testament, but only to the book of Revelation. It is also interesting to note that John himself added to scripture after writing the book of Revelation, which is generally conceded to have been written while he was on the Isle of Patmos. It was long after John had left Patmos that he wrote the first epistle. This fact standing alone would be sufficient to defeat the claim that Revelation was closed and that man was enjoined from adding to scripture. This adds cumulative evidence that John had reference to the book of Revelation only. So, in addition, there's also several times in the Old Testament that says that warns against adding onto that word. And so it's a little, a lot silly to conclude then that there couldn't possibly be any additional addition to the book of Revelations. But beyond that, to answer that particular critique, the Book of Mormon answers it perfectly in 2 Nephi chapter 29, as Nephi is talking about this stick of Ephraim, the Book of Mormon being revealed to the Gentiles in the latter days. He says that they, the Gentiles, will say, starting in verse 6, a Bible. We have got a Bible, and we need no more Bible. Have ye obtained a Bible, save it were by the Jews? Know ye not that there are more nations than one? Know ye not that I... The Lord your God have created all men, and that I remember those who are upon the isles of the sea, and that I rule in the heavens above and in the earth beneath, and that I bring forth my word unto the children of men, yea, even upon all the nations of the earth. Wherefore murmur ye, 
because that ye shall receive more of my word? Know ye not that the testimony of two nations is a witness unto you that I am God, that I remember one nation like unto another? Wherefore I speak the same words unto one nation like unto another. And when the two nations shall run together, the testimony of the two nations shall run together also. There's that joining of those two sticks. Continuing, And I do this that I may prove unto many that I am the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that I speak forth my words according to mine own pleasure. And because that I have spoken one word, ye need not suppose that I cannot speak another. For my work is not yet finished, neither shall it be until the end of man, neither from that time henceforth and forever. Wherefore, because that ye have a Bible, ye need not suppose that it contains all my words, neither need ye suppose that I have not caused more to be written. For I command all men, both in the east and in the west and in the north and in the south and in the islands of the sea, that they shall write the words which I shall speak unto them. For out of the books which shall be written I will judge the world, every man according to their works, according to that which is written. For behold, I shall speak unto the Jews, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto the Nephites, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto the other tribes of the house of Israel, which I have led away, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto all nations of the earth, and they shall write it. And it shall come to pass that the Jews shall have the words of the Nephites, and the Nephites shall have the words of the Jews, and the Nephites and the Jews shall have the words of the lost tribes of Israel, and the lost tribes of Israel shall have the words of the Nephites and the Jews. Doesn't that just give you chills? What a fulfillment of prophecy! The Jews shall have the words of the Nephites, and the Nephites shall have the words of the Jews, and the Nephites and the Jews shall have the words of the lost tribes of Israel, and the lost tribes of Israel shall have the words of the Nephites and the Jews. Prophecy Fulfilled This last Sunday, I was watching one of my favorite shows, and I'm sure many of you have watched it, and if you haven't, you need to. It's called The Chosen. The Chosen is written and produced by... Christians who are not members of the church. They're evangelical Christians. And they are attempting quite successfully to create a show depicting the life of Jesus Christ. But it's a little bit different than the the videos that the church puts out because the church tries to stay really, really close to the scriptures. Whereas this show tries to explore what might have been, what the story, what the backstory might have been. So in the episode that I was watching, Nicodemus, who in the actual scriptures is an important character. He was a Pharisee, and we see him in the Gospel of John three times. The first time he has a discussion with Christ personally about about the Gospel. And the second time he is reminding his colleagues that people that Jesus should be heard before being judged. And in the third time, he helps Joseph of Arimathea prepare Jesus's body for burial. So that's the character that's in this scene. And in The Chosen, Nicodemus is portrayed as a very influential leader of the Pharisees. And in this scene, he's talking to, I don't know what to call him, but an, an apprentice of some kind named Shmuel. And they're having a heated conversation. And in that conversation, Shmuel is upset because he is hearing about this Jesus of Nazareth. He's hearing about John and Nicodemus has already been um, 
affected, like I said, by Jesus, although Shmuel doesn't necessarily know the extent of Nicodemus's feelings at this point. So in the scene, Shmuel is reciting for Nicodemus a portion of Isaiah that is prophesying what sounds like John the Baptist and he who comes after the Messiah. But of course, the Pharisees reject John the Baptist. And Nicodemus, after Shmuel reads that verse, he asks him who that sounds like. And Shmuel knows what Nicodemus is after, but he's very offended at even considering that John the heretic was the man prophesied about. And Nicodemus asks Shmuel what heresy he finds in the words that Isaiah spoke. And Shmuel retorts that the heresy is that John has appropriated Isaiah's words by taking a spiritual description of God in heaven and applying them to his his successor, who is Jesus Christ. And he then, Shmuel then quotes John saying, he who comes after me is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Shmuel is offended because this seems ridiculous because God has no body and cannot wear sandals. God cannot take human form. And to say that he can is blasphemy. Nicodemus then challenges him saying, and where does it say that? Shmuel retorts, saying that it's in Deuteronomy, where it says that the people saw no face. And Nicodemus says that that just because that they saw no face doesn't mean that he can't, that God can't take human form. Shmuel continues, and he says in Exodus, it says that you cannot see my face because no man can look on me and live. This person, meaning Jesus, John's successor, he says, would have to walk around with his face uncovered. Nicodemus then says, so you would place limits on the Almighty? And he says, none that are not written in law. And he touches the Torah. And then Nicodemus says, so if God did something that you felt contradicted the Torah, would you tell him to get back in that box that you have carved for him? Or would you question your interpretation of the Torah? Now, the reason I wanted to tell you about this is because it struck me as I watched that, that that is what so many people do now. They have their interpretation of their Bible. They have what they're comfortable with, the gospel they're comfortable with. They have, as Nicodemus puts it, a box that they've carved God into. So the question is, what if God does something that contradicts your interpretation of the Bible? Do you keep God in that box or do you consider that your interpretation might be wrong? Isn't it interesting to think that those who actively reject the restored gospel, are doing the same thing that the Pharisees did in Jesus' day when John the heretic came and was prophesying of a coming Messiah whose way he was preparing. The Book of Mormon and the Bible in combination are preparing the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Think about what a tragic mistake it is to dismiss the Book of Mormon because it doesn't fit in the box that you might have created in your mind. And think of what a sacred responsibility it is for us to share the gospel, to share the Book of Mormon, so that people can realize, just like those who ended up accepting Jesus when he was living his mortal life, we have the opportunity to share the Book of Mormon so that people can realize that God is not done speaking to man, that as the Bible was being written, there were more nations than one, that the Lord God created all men, and that he remembers all those who are upon the isles of the sea, and that he rules in the heavens above and the earth beneath, 
and that he brings forth his word unto the children of men, yea, even upon all the nations of the earth. President Boy K. Packer said, The stick or record of Judah and the stick or record of Ephraim are now woven together in such a way that as you pour over one, you are drawn to the other. As you learn from one, you are enlightened by the other. They are indeed one in our hands. Ezekiel's prophecy now stands fulfilled. With the passing of years, these scriptures will produce successive generations of faithful Christians who know the Lord Jesus Christ and are disposed to obey his will. The revelations will be open to them as to no other in the history of the world. Into their hands are now placed the sticks of Joseph and of Judah. They will develop a gospel scholarship beyond that which their forebears could achieve. They will have the testimony that Jesus is the Christ and be competent to proclaim and to defend him. Think about that last part. They will develop a gospel scholarship beyond that which their forebears could achieve. You have that capability. I have that capability. They will have a testimony that Jesus is the Christ and be competent to proclaim him and to defend him. We have the Bible. We've been studying the Bible all year. We will continue to study the Bible next year. It is a sacred testimony of Jesus Christ that many people of the world accept as truth. There are so many beautiful Christians around the world who passionately know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is their Savior and their Redeemer, who are making an amazing difference in this world, who are part of our Father in Heaven's incredible army that he is raising up as the world is becoming so incredibly wicked. I listen and I follow so many powerful Christian men and women who are boldly declaring that they are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, sometimes even better than I think we as a whole, as members of the church, are doing. That faith was gained through reading the word of God in the Bible, this stick of Judah Ezekiel speaks of. It is a crucial part of the gathering of Israel, and it is a crucial part for preparing the world to accept the gospel. But... The Bible was never the whole story. Ezekiel prophesied it here. He told us that there would be another testament, another testament that would ultimately join together the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Judah as one with one king, he who is testified of in both of these books, these sticks, Jesus Christ. The Book of Mormon has blessed my life in more ways than I could ever possibly list. The Book of Mormon, and thereby the gospel of Jesus Christ, has given me a peace of mind that can only come from God. It is because of the Book of Mormon and modern-day Revelation that studying the topics of the signs of the times and watching what's happening in the world does not stress me out. That doesn't mean that I'm not concerned or actively trying to work within my sphere of influence to speak up about things. That is what we are supposed to do. But I am not worried. Because of the stick of Judah and the stick of Ephraim, I feel completely confident and capable of obeying the Lord's command to fear not. When Ezekiel prophesied of these two incredible books joining together as one, the plan was already in motion. Heavenly Father and the Savior know exactly what they're doing. They know how to take care of us. They know exactly what needs to be done to gather the house of Israel. As we choose Him, as we make Him the center of our lives, we need not fear because we cannot fall. My favorite verse in the Book of Mormon is Helaman 5.12. And now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe, because of the rock upon which ye are built, 
which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. Cannot fall. That doesn't mean I won't have hard, perhaps even devastating things happen in my life. It means that even when those things happen, I can rely on the rock of my Redeemer, a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if I build, I cannot fall. There is spiritual safety as we seek to gain testimony of the Bible and the Book of Mormon. There is peace and security as we gain testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the plan of salvation. I am eternally grateful for the Book of Mormon and the spiritual peace it has provided for me. I am grateful for these prophets in the Bible and in the Book of Mormon who obeyed the Lord's command and wrote these things down when they were commanded to do so, and in doing so fulfilled prophecy that began the dispensation of the fullness of times. That was and is our sign that the Lord is gathering His people this final time. I want to end with one of the most powerful testimonies of the Book of Mormon I have ever heard from Elder Holland in his 2009 talk called Safety for the Soul. He says, Love, healing, help, hope. The power of Christ to counter all troubles in all times, including the end of times. That is the safe harbor God wants us in personal or public days of despair. That is the message with which the Book of Mormon begins, and that is the message with which it ends calling all to come unto Christ and be perfected in Him. That phrase, taken from Moroni's final lines of testimony, written a thousand years after Lehi's vision, is a dying man's testimony of the only true way. May I refer to a modern last day's testimony. When Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram started for Carthage to face what they knew would be an imminent martyrdom, Hiram read these words to comfort the heart of his brother. Thou hast been faithful. Wherefore, thou shalt be made strong, even unto the sitting down in the place which I have prepared in the mansions of my father. And now I, Moroni, bid farewell, until we shall meet before the judgment seat of Christ. A few short verses from the twelfth chapter of Ether in the Book of Mormon. Before closing the book, Hiram turned down the corner of the page from which he read, marking it as part of the everlasting testimony for which these two brothers were about to die. I hold in my hand that book, the very copy from which Hiram read. The same corner of the page still turned down. Later, when actually incarcerated in the jail, Joseph the prophet turned to the guards who held him captive and bore a powerful testimony of the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Shortly thereafter, pistol and ball would take their lives of these two testators. As one of a thousand elements of my own testimony of the divinity of the Book of Mormon, I submit this as yet one more evidence of its truthfulness. In this, their greatest and last hour of need, I ask you, would these men blaspheme before God by continuing to fix their lives, their honor, and their own search for eternal salvation on a book, and by implication a church and a ministry they had fictitiously created out of whole cloth? Never mind that their wives were about to be widows and their children fatherless. Never mind that their little band of followers will yet be houseless and friendless and homeless and that their children will leave footprints of blood across frozen rivers and untamed prairie floor. Never mind that lesions will die and other lesions live declaring the four quarters of this earth that they know the Book of Mormon and the church which espouses it to be true. Disregard all of that and tell me whether in this hour of death these two men would enter the presence of their eternal judge, quoting from and finding solace in a book, which, if not the very word of God, would brand them as impostors and charlatans until the end of time. 
they would not do that. They were willing to die rather than to deny the divine origin and eternal truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. For 179 years, this book has been examined and attacked, denied and deconstructed, targeted and torn apart like perhaps no other book in modern religious history. Perhaps like no other book in any religious history. And still it stands. Failed theories about its origins have been born and parroted and have died, from Ethan Smith to Solomon Spaulding to deranged paranoid to cunning genius. None of these frankly pathetic answers for this book has ever withstood examination because there is no other answer than the one Joseph gave as its young, unlearned translator. In this I stand with my own great-grandfather who said simply enough, no wicked man could write such a book as this and no good man would write it unless it were true and he were commanded of God to do so. I testify that one cannot come to full faith in this latter-day work and thereby find the fullest measure of peace and comfort in these our times until he or she embraces the divinity of the Book of Mormon and the Lord Jesus Christ of whom it testifies. If anyone is foolish enough or misled enough to reject 531 pages of a heretofore unknown text teeming with literary and semantic complexity without honestly attempting to account for the origin of those pages, especially without accounting for their powerful witness of Jesus Christ and the profound spiritual impact that that witness has had on what is now tens of millions of readers, if that is the case, then such a person, elect or otherwise, has been deceived. And if he or she leaves this church, it must be done by crawling over or under or around the Book of Mormon to make that exit. In that sense, the book is what Christ himself was said to be a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, a barrier in this path of one who wishes not to believe in this work. Witnesses, even witnesses who were for a time hostile to Joseph, testified to their death that they had seen an angel and had handled the plates. They have been shown unto us by the power of God and not of man, they declared. Wherefore, we know of a surety that the work is true. Now, I did not sail with the brother of Jared in crossing an ocean, settling in a new world. I did not hear King Benjamin speak his angelically delivered sermon. I did not proselyte with Alma and Amulek, nor witness the fiery death of innocent believers. I was not among the Nephite crowd who touched the wounds of the resurrected Lord, nor did I weep with Mormon and Moroni over the destruction of an entire civilization. But my testimony of this record and the peace it brings to the human heart is as binding and unequivocal as was theirs. Like them, I give my name unto the world, to witness unto the world that that which I have seen, and like them, I lie not, God bearing witness of it. I ask that my testimony of the Book of Mormon and all that it implies, given today under mine own oath and office, to be recorded by men on earth and angels in heaven. I hope I have a few years left in my last days, but whether I do or do not, I want it absolutely clear that when I stand before the judgment bar of God, that I declared to the world, in the most straightforward language I could summon, that the Book of Mormon is true, that it came forth the way Joseph said it came forth and was given to bring happiness and hope to the faithful in the travail of the latter days. My witness echoes that of Nephi, who wrote part of the book in his last days. Hearken unto these words and believe in Christ. And if ye believe not in these words, believe in Christ. And if ye shall believe in Christ, ye will believe in these words, for they are the words of Christ, and they teach all men that they should do good. And if they are not the words of Christ, judge ye, 
For Christ will show unto you with power and great glory that they are his words at the last day. Brothers and sisters, God always provides safety for the soul, and with the Book of Mormon, he has again done it in our time. Remember this declaration by Jesus himself. Whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. And in the last days, neither your heart nor your faith will fail you. Of this I earnestly testify, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.